Welcome to the Smart Talk series, Henry George School Social Science Podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our discussion comes from our most recent annual conference, Why is Housing So Unaffordable? Causes and Solutions. For the next 12 weeks, our discussions will revolve around the topic of housing and house prices with three subtopics. The first will be root causes, followed by an evaluation of current policy responses, and finishes with alternatives to current policy and thinking around affordability. For today's program, we were lucky enough to talk to Mark Molino. Mark is an artist, podcaster, and researcher who focuses on metropolitan resilience, urbanization, and housing affordability. Nowadays, housing issues are on everyone's mind, from ownership to affordability, but because we're sort of caught up in the day-to-day stresses from the real-world issues of housing, we forget or even misunderstand how we got here and why that matters for finding a solution. The 20th century saw a shift towards suburbanization, the movement from city living to the suburbs. As a result, urban planning moved towards supporting these areas at the expense of cities. This caused inequality to grow between homeowners and those who couldn't afford to purchase a house, creating the unaffordability crisis we experience today. Mr. Molino is a lifelong Georgist who hosts the popular podcast Georgist Perspectives on Stanford's radio, where he hosts discussions on Georgist ideas. Our guest today helps us to understand the historical trajectories urban planning has led us to and looks to offer redistributive solutions that benefit city dwellers and promote equity. His discussion is followed by a brief commentary from the rest of our panel. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. So yeah, this is just a a few thoughts of uh, exactly, you know, what I believe are the broad strokes in you know, what's, what's screwed up now? Uh, how do we get here? Where are we going to go? Um, I, I, there's a lot of different, I, I think, timescales we can look at to say things used to not be this bad. Now they are bad. Uh, and I think, I think a lot of different timescales can be useful. Um, I think the most natural ones tend to be within our own uh, lifespans. I think especially we have an I, I think idealizing, uh, you know, the kind of great society era, the strong unions, you know, the the, the white picket fences that are affordable of the fifties, sixties, et cetera. Uh, but I, I think it's 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 useful to look at that. But I honestly think we need to look a bit further. Uh, and here are a few slides uh, showing diagrams uh, from a city I'm very familiar with, uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. There's a lot of good histories of it. I think it's a kind of uh, useful kind of stand in for a lot of different cities. Uh, But this is going back to uh, 1890. Uh, And for a lot of cities, uh, this is from a book by uh, historian Zane Miller uh, called Boss Cox's Cincinnati, uh, which came out, I think, in the late 60s, mid 60s. But he has a a kind of framework for, you know, how cities function uh, in multiple areas. He has the circle the zone and the hilltops. Uh, the circle uh, is, you know, what people might call the kind of, you know, pre-transportation city, the walking city. Uh, in Cincinnati, it is the flat area where people could stop. It was, you know, it was a chaotic, crazy place. Uh, it was almost fully integrated, but there are race wars. Uh, 
I think uh, it's it's uh, I think you you wouldn't want to romanticize such a place full of disease, full of violence. Uh, but it was how people lived. It, if you're going to a place, you would end up in the circle. If you were just a, uh, you know, just some uh, normal person. Uh, and the hilltops are basically the well-to-do folks who are trying to escape from it. In Cincinnati, there is an actual, you know, basin and hilltop zone. In fact, you see hilltops surrounding all sides of it. You see Price Hill. You see Clifton. That's Mount Adams there on the right. Uh, these were places people escaped to. The zone is the kind of middle class boundary area uh, between the two. Uh, so the one thing he looks at is how this advanced in time. Uh, you see, 1890, it was not that hard. If you had a you know horse and carriage, you could be well to do and and the time and 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 uh, servants to help you uh, just get away from it all up to the hilltops. But the fact that the middle class were encroaching, uh, you know, made them escape further. So by 1910. You can see the uh, the middle class is moving up. What is actually a, a small creek valley is moving up into some of the hilltops, uh, and you see uh, the you know the uh, suburbanites move further and further out. Uh, you know the, the the great working masses continue to be in the in the circle. Uh, the reason I bring this up, I mean, if you talk about the insights of uh, you know Henry George and so on, I, I think the law of rent is very, very useful to saying, you know, what can people afford? And usually it is, what are your alternatives? What can you, what, what you know, where can you go? Uh, and basically, I, I, I think if you look at the pressure cooker, if you only have the circle, people are stuck, you know, you can build denser and denser slums. And they did, I mean, tenements uh, in Cincinnati, like most cities uh, were, you know, legion, uh, but the fact that there was a middle class escape route, uh, the zone was really the way that uh, allowed some sort of daylight out. I mean, most people didn't escape, but they at least had the uh, the hope of escaping. Uh, but let's let's continue on and on of, of how this went. Uh, so I'm going to shrink this down just a bit uh, for the reason of uh, here is the 20th century in a nutshell. Uh, so that is Cincinnati in the last, uh, you know, basically where it's built. This is, you know, a person who looked at all data of construction. And this is, you know, uh, even, I mean, what's sad about this, you can go up, uh, you know, a good half hour in every direction and continue to see a lot of really, you know, miserable uh, post-war suburbs full of <laughs> full of awful people. Uh, but in general, uh, the, the actual built uh, environment or so on, uh, you know, more or less stagnated, stayed the same, uh, you know, in the kind of classic city. But we we had a uh, a program. Uh, the program was uh, we will help you, uh, you know, with the homeownership program. The homeownership program, if you move out to where there is free land, uh, you can, you know, get your own place. It will be built relatively cheaply and you can... Uh, you know, continue to work usually in the center city, you know, increasingly there'll be suburban office places as well. What's interesting here is, you know, at this moment to get to, you know, the outer reaches of the suburban commute shed, you're talking, you know, half hour, an hour, and Cincinnati's not as bad as most. And that's a reason why it's relatively affordable. Uh, but there's, I mean, this is all basically built out, <laughs> at least in the way it is building. You could always do infill, but we never... We never do. 
so as far as it goes, uh, we're seeing a kind of, you know, an end of the line as far as this program. I, I, I mean, we're actually in Cincinnati. If you go north enough, you hit Dayton, you know, so you got two blobs uh, hitting each other. And the other part of this uh, is just the fact that this this program of suburbanization and uh, you know, fleeing the city, you know, was uh, pursued in conjunction with, you know, active, I would say, busy buddyism of the uh, of the racist sort. At the same time, Cincinnati went into its, uh, you know, what you would call slums or you call tenements, but uh, it is where its black community live, the West End, and bulldozed it for highways. Uh, that is, uh, it's one of the more egregious, but this happened time and time again in many cities. Uh, communities are displaced, you know, moved into where they could find, and there is, again, uh, you know, conflict, race wars, segregation pursued by realtors, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the center city, what was left of it, largely abandoned. Uh, this was the mid-century white flight um, and now you're seeing that reverse. You're saying, you know, well-to-do uh, white uh, yuppies, young hipsters, etc., move back and uh, displacement, you know, pursuing. I think it's very easy to say things used to be nice in the center city or things used to be affordable in the center city. Uh, and we're now seeing the aberration. I I see the mid-century, you know, bottoming out of the of the center city as being the aberration. I think in the large sense of uh, the law of rent, you know, the core of the city is always going to be where people, uh, you know, there's always going to be a ton of people who are who are aiming at that. And uh, I don't think uh, just giving suburban alternatives is going to keep it affordable uh, anymore. And in fact, I think uh, looking at ways to avoid displacement, you know, make sure people are whole, uh, it's it's harder than ever because the demand is there and it seems like no matter what you do you can build more you can you know do whatever but it's uh it's people are people are suffering and uh well what is the answer here and i, I mean very broadly i i think we need sort of radical solutions uh, something on the order of actual you know redistribution of city wealth um anything less uh is just not going to be strong enough uh yeah, just some, just some thoughts. As I was saying, the suburban frontier has been in the story of the 20th century. You know, we had affordability largely because we had new uh, technology in the form of first streetcars and then automobiles, and that that definitely helped for a long while. Uh, the progressive era, uh, I you know, really was hand in hand with this whole project, which was an anti-urban anti-chaos uh there's you know books about the the search for order and the search for order uh you know once you know it had to, had to do a lot with uh, separating the races uh and you know essentially kind of having a an atomized uh, separate existence and just wanting to wipe away the chaos of the urban area uh, i don't think that's tenable i think chaos is going to exist and we have to learn to deal with it and embrace it Instead of just uh, you know bulldozing it and trying to uh, you know place people out in further and further little uh, curated, perfectly planned uh, communities, uh, the the big question in the, in the in the progressive era mind too is just tenants is that is seen as being unseemly as being you know less than a fully dignified realized uh, you know person. I they, they when they talk about the uh, the mindset of of the hilltop folks, they saw the slum dwellers as an 
active menace. If they move to your community and build an apartment in your community, they will bring the uh, the uh, the failure of the of the of the human spirit uh, to your community. Uh, and there are better ways. Uh, I think if you uh, you know, we're seeing this this kind of classic idea that tenants are not that's not a real way of, of existing. It's temporarily embarrassed homeowners. Uh, this allows us, you know, as we're seeing, uh, you know, a, the the huge profits made in landlording. Uh, it in general, like they're being milked, and it is seen as being a landlord. Oh, that's an actual, you know, <laughs> that's a productive member of society, and and it is in our interest to see them. Uh, thrive, uh, especially the mom and pops. Uh, in places like Germany, as we've seen, are seeing less you know, uh, affordability issues. A big part of that is the fact that being a middle-aged young person or old person and being a renter is seen as legitimate, uh, rent in, especially in uh, you know, several key cities. Berlin, 85% renters, they have strong tenant protections. It is seen as stable. It is seen as dignified. Uh, and you can, you know, uh, much more autonomous too. You can you can control your space. And honestly, if we're seeing any movement to make anything more affordable, the classic, you know, the classic growth machine of realtors, highway engineers, and uh, and uh, the growing suburbs, it's not going to work anymore. And I think we have to have a much more tenant-led uh, movement. Uh, and I, I believe. If there's any hope, uh, you know, uh, essentially trying to share the wealth of our cities, uh, you know, as led by the landless, uh, that's that's our only hope. So uh, that's that's uh, the very broad strokes. I could probably take the next hour in making some comments to the three three presentations we've heard uh, in, ter in terms of the economics that Josh has provided to us. I think it's real interesting uh, to note the importance of the explosion in the mortgage-backed security market that he mentioned. Um, when I was first a, a loan officer and then managed the mortgage department for a, a commercial bank, we were largely a portfolio lender. Um, there was a small amount of, of uh, involvement with the investment community where we sold mortgage loans, packaged them and sold them to pension funds and some other institutional investors. But the MBS market really took off, uh, I guess, in the in the late 1980s uh, and, and really exploded. And one of the things that that made the MBS market um, viable was standardization of of the loan documents and of the uh, terms of, of loans that were being made. And this was basically orchestrated by in the United States by the main GSEs, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And so that that's really, um, in my view, what really caused the market to explode. However, and Josh really didn't get into this, um, Wall Street <clears throat> saw this as an impediment to their ability to generate volume. And so they created the um, private label mortgage-backed securities market and that's when subprime mortgage loans, in my view, started to come into play. And the problem with the subprime mortgage loans was that they were not underwritten to conventional standards. And in fact, a significant percentage of that business was, was originated by fraud and misrepresentation. And they managed, Wall Street managed to get the main uh, bond rating agencies to rate the securities that they generated 
as uh, low risk, as AAA rated bonds. None of that was accurate. And we paid a heck of a price for allowing that kind of business to take place. And in fact, in my view, it brought down Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, after the 2008 crash. So Mark, uh, Josh, you might wanna comment on that later, uh, just as, as one initial comment. Um, there's another economic issue that you might want to respond to, and that is that economists have argued in places like New York City, uh, Angela, you might appreciate this, that the low rate of home ownership actually is a benefit because it, it adds to labor mobility. In other words, when the economy begins to go south, the individuals who are renters have an easier time getting out of their leases and moving to where the job opportunities are now are now being created. That's, that's something uh, to consider and maybe, maybe can be uh, commented on. Uh, Angela, I think the real benefit of what your work is doing is adding transparency so that, so that every, the public sector uh, is providing information that has been previously hidden and therefore enables people like you and those of those of us who've always been interested in uh, fair lending and in equality of access to housing can really deal with the issues that are created by the corporatization of the uh, uh, real estate uh, investment market. So I'd, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about transparency, if you can. And Mark, um, the first thing is that several people have asked that you be you clarify what you meant when you said horrible people. Um, I think I know what you meant, but but I think a lot of people might be uh, need to know what you mean by that, so we have a clear understanding of who you're talking about. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that I would that comes up in my mind listening to you was the fact that if we look throughout history of immigration in the United States one of the objectives of immigrants was to acquire a property in which they themselves <clears throat> and their family members could live in. And so you have uh, uh, a desire to particularly acquire two to four family properties uh, so that one unit could be occupied by the owner and the other three units could be occupied by tenants most often family members. At least that was it. that's been the case in the cities of the United States where immigration has been a continuous pattern. And I think it continues today uh, pretty strongly, uh, although the opportunity for immigrants to acquire a two, three, or four-unit property is most difficult. I can say this, in my experience as a lender, um, it was amazing to me how many people would come in uh, who were maybe second generation U.S. Uh, residents, maybe not even citizens yet, and have accumulated the sufficient savings to put down a 20% down payment or more. Uh, often uh, banks require for a two to four unit property, a minimum down payment of 25% cash down payment. But people were able to come in with those kinds of cash uh, down payments in order to acquire these properties. And I think that that's probably still a pattern in, in many cities. So Angela, maybe you have some information on that in New York City. Um, so with that, um, I will turn it over to each of you, the three of you to 
respond to those issues I brought up and ask questions of one another. And I'll join in as, as seems appropriate. So any anyone care to start? I can, I can make my response uh, quick, just to you know, break the break the pause. Uh, horrible people. Uh, I think in general, I, I'm being a bit glib, but honestly, I think what's notable, Cincinnati, uh, you know, of course, back in the Civil War was, you know, a free state. Kentucky was a slave state. Uh, it's not surprising if you go south, you'll see Confederate flags. Uh, in Cincinnati, growing up, if you go north to any any suburb far enough, you will eventually see Confederate flags on all sides. You know, I, I think you know, that alone always you know, gave me this um, uh, just feeling of dread. Uh, in in every direction, uh, I, I think you could talk about the human spirit and you know the aesthetics of McMansions, strip malls, big box stores, etc. And I think certainly there is something bad uh, about car based you know suburbia, especially the further out it is. You know, if it's a streetcar suburb, I think that's you know pretty decent. Those are the places that already existed by nineteen you know ten. Uh, when you talk about West Westchester, Ohio, or places that are you know. Uh, you know, you know, lush suburbs like the uh, the city of the village of Indian Hill, uh, which you know looks like something you'd see you know, full of you know crunchy you know um, you know suburbia in California, but this is you know it's it's a right wing stronghold. You know the suburbs uh, in in many places are still full of uh, I think right wing sentiment. I, I think the if you look at the seat of fascism in America, you could look at kind of the decentralized, uh, you know, kind of suburban blobs of, of, of Florida. You can look at, uh, I think, Long Island. <laughs> Long Island, the further out you go, is some some pretty nasty stuff out there. Uh, but I think, too, just, you know, I think in practical terms, if you want to reform the system, people who have bought in through the realtor, uh, you know, kind of growth machine, uh, they have a very strong incentive to not fix this. If, if they see their... Uh, if they see the fact that they are only 45 minutes out in this, you know, lush McMansion area, uh, if that is infringed upon or, you know, in endangered uh, through reforms, uh, they're they're going to they're going to be your biggest enemy for uh, the rights of, of tenants, the rights of, of you know, justice and, and access to land, et cetera. So that's that's my brief answer. OK, um, any thoughts uh, in response, uh, Angela or Josh? I'm happy to tackle the two points you addressed towards me, um, Ed. Uh, so yeah, I I hear what you're saying on um, on the subprime mortgage market. Uh, I'm sure there was uh, lots of fraudulent behaviour. I know there was because um, I have read some of the research on it. Um, and so yeah, yeah, I I think you're right that, that that's that the subprime crisis was was in part the result of uh, heavy lobbying by by certain vested interests in the financial sector um influencing the regulators and influencing Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac I don't think that uh sort of necessarily detracts from the broader argument that liberalizing the financial sector inevitably leads to an over uh investment of of credit going into into housing which which drives up house prices uh, especially when you couple that with a with a sort of wider macro financial regime and fiscal regime which is which is oriented around supporting home ownership uh, above and beyond other tenures <clears throat> uh, i think those those dynamics would have still happened with or without the um, the subprime crisis and the and the gfc they they might have just been you know that 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 
build-up of of house prices in that credit bubble would have been slower, especially in the US. But, but some other crisis would have happened eventually. Uh, you just had too much. You just had too much mortgage debt relative to incomes, um, and somewhere would have would have blown up and, and catalyzed a wider crisis. On your second point around New York's. Uh, city and the low rate of home ownership being a benefit yeah that's an interesting one i i have sympathy with the with the broad macroeconomic argument that um that home ownership is not the most economically efficient tenure form i think basically that's that's true um and i do think it discouraged uh, a sort of regime of where home ownership is the dominant policy preference discourages labor mobility and probably probably reduces productivity for that reason um in the uk we have very high uh, what's called stamp duty which is simply transaction taxes so when you buy a house you pay like three to five percent of the property of uh, of the value of the property and this of course massively discourages people to move house um and so it's a very uh, inefficient tax compared to say an annual uh tax on the on the increase in the value of the property or the land underneath it which i think is is a much more efficient way of taxing uh property but more generally yeah i, I have sympathy with that um but i and think your argument was that was that certain certain uh, build to rent uh, construct, uh, construction agencies and developers were making this this argument right and that that was uh that was sort of giving them some cover for for this um uh, sort of quite speculative forms of as 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 angela was saying corporatization of of the new york um housing uh system so um yeah i'm i'm sure that they were using that argument in a slightly undesirable way but maybe angela can comment on that a bit further I'll give Angela the floor in just a second. I just want to, uh, my thought was that the stamp duty that you referred to in the UK uh, might have the same impact that Proposition 13 had in California in terms of, of being a disincentive for people to sell their property, given the benefits they experience under Prop 13. With, and is that basically your point with regard to the stamp duty? Yeah, yeah. I think any tax any tax system that that discourages mobility is is highly problematic when it comes to to housing. Uh, and and yeah, I think I think the Prop Thirteen. I think I've written about that in in Why Can't You Afford a Home? Um, it's it's just encouraging rent extraction as opposed to you know using using housing as a, as a consumption good and a a place to to live and work. Basically, that's what we need to return to a system where that's the type of of usage that that we we go for thanks angela what have you what are your thoughts on what you've heard so far from uh, our other two panelists and from <laughs> me as well yeah um yeah it's very uh very uh interesting i was thinking often actually about the your your question about um uh the de the data transparency question um i guess like data transparency is a key tool for um empowerment more broadly so like we're somewhat lucky in new york city in terms of the availability of public source data mm -hmm. um you know there are a lot of places um across the country that are trying to replicate for example who owns what to kind of get at what uh 
kind of like understand more about like who actually owns your building, how many properties they own and are kind of bearing up against the um, lack of transparent data generally. Um, obviously there is a lot of, um, you know, discussion could be had about like how that data is maintained, how often it's updated, um, you know, that sort of thing too, like which agencies are, you know, in charge of it, who has access to certain types of data, who has agreements for data that isn't just publicly available to everyone. Um, but that is something that I guess in New York City, we are a little bit um, lucky to have. Um, you know, oftentimes when certain legislation is being debated, they will ask us about the numbers, uh, um, you know, if, you know, we exempted this type of landlord with this amount of units, like how many people would that be? And it kind of is illuminating to think that like a lot of these policy recommendations are being made without any sense of what that number is, kind of like arbitrary, in fact. Um, but, uh, you know, they're not really understanding fully the scope or impact of what those kind of changes could bring. Um, but uh, additionally, data transparency is like a key aspect of empowering tenants themselves for collective action. So like knowing complaint and violation histories, knowing the number of buildings your landlord owns, being aware of changes in rent stabilization status um, across your building or the number of evictions that are currently happening in your building. Um, and also like kind of creating these inroads of where other tenants can connect for collective actions like rent strikes, like through on one calling campaigns, like packing the courts when their neighbors are at risk of eviction. Um, these are kind of like all the sort of like both individual and like larger scale, like macro sort of like level that data transparency can really bring and it really activate tenants for collective actions and also kind of like inform policy in a much better way. Um, uh, if you could uh, remind me of the other question that you had concerning um, like the why it's good that tenants are not, or like that there isn't a high rate of homeownership in New York yeah. City? Well, that was a question I posed to Josh generally, that economists argue that, that cities with a low rate of homeownership <clears throat> benefit in the sense that when, there are, when we go through economic cycles, when we hit a downturn in economic cycles and employment increases, people who are tenants, when there's a high demand for rental units, have an easier time getting out of their lease and being able to move wherever the job opportunities exist. So he, Josh commented that that's that economists do do sort of sympathize with that argument. Whereas um, in my own case, uh, my last 20 years at Fannie Mae before I retired, our, our task, our mission was to increase the rate of home ownership among uh, low income housing low-income households, and minorities in particular. So even in New York City, we were constantly working to try to find ways to make uh, housing more affordable for those segments of the population who had been underserved, what we called underserved. Yeah, and it's very interesting to think about the way in which, like, I guess I don't really have um, much to say on the actual, like, nitty-gritty economics part of it, but in terms of, like, the actual lived experience of tenants, I would say that, like, it's interesting to think of New York City as a city of, like, transients, like, so many people move here for jobs for whatever reason, but so many people who are, like, if we're looking at the actual data of New Yorkers that are, you know, in shelters today or that are being 
like pushed out of New York generally, like we're seeing sort of the like reverse great migration where people who came to the North, um, you know, black families that came to the North for jobs um, uh, are now moving back to whatever family they have in the South or, and a lot of the times too in New York, like they are being pushed to, you know, Yonkers, to some towns that border um, Jamaica and Cambria Heights and things like that on Long Island. So, um, you know, the people that are bearing, the number of people that are living in shelters, the people that are bearing the brunt of that are people who are, you know, more of the, the native New Yorkers and less so, I think people that are able to kind of exercise that flexibility or that sort of um, like take advantage of that are definitely people who um, are of a certain means just in terms of like being able to kind of live and move depending on kind of markets where it's like, you know, for for low income renters, that's not really the case, um, especially if they have like a housing voucher. And although we have like very robust protections in terms of source of income discrimination being against the law, like, you know, landlords cannot refuse to rent to you if you do have a subsidy. It's rampant. It's a part of, it's a ubiquitous part of renting here in the city. Um, and enforcement is really down um, because of uh, just how the city's budget is allocated. There's not a lot of resources that are going towards the city commission on human rights and like their offices have been gutted in many senses. So um yeah, I don't know if that actually answers your question, but that kind of what comes to mind of like who actually can exercise that is probably not the most marginalized folks. And so many, you know, homeowners that I think, uh, you know, some of the saddest cases that we had in Queens, but that were sadly very, you know, um, common were the like deed theft cases or cases where like, you know, a black family that owned a home since the 1950s, 1960s, were not even aware that their house was in foreclosure until they were brought with a holdover proceeding. And at that point, it's too late. There's nothing that can be done. And in terms of like actually having, you know, any sort of, you know, generational wealth through, through housing, like was eliminated for that family and like how devastating that is. So I guess that's kind of a rant and not exactly what you were asking me, but just I'm thinking about the actual tenants I would be able to exercise that is like yeah. a very specific subset certainly the uh, from from what all three of you have contributed we know that these the issues of why um land prices go up is a big part of this in terms of the economic uh, dynamics and how the rising land prices run through the rest of the economy first through the property markets and then of course as property costs increase you have the labor force trying to negotiate increases in income in order to cover the inflation in their cost of living for housing. And it translates all the way through the economy. I think, you know, Josh, you would accept that analysis, would you not? And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.